the holidays, the holidays are upon us, which thank you, Priscilla, for reminding us. If you forgot, yes, Thanksgiving is this Thursday, and Christmas is just around the corner. I'm curious, though, what, uh, what kind of aromas have been or will be wafting from your oven in your house over these holidays? What kind of baked goods will be filling your house with wonderful smells? Like cookies, cinnamon rolls, pie, maybe some turkey. Oh, yes. Maybe some hot cider on the stove with a little cinnamon sticks floating in there and that poor orange with all the cloves poked into it like a porcupine. Maybe some gingerbread or fruitcake. I want to take you back, though, if I could, to your childhood. Let's go back to when you were a little kid, just a little bugger. And let's imagine for a moment you're in your family's kitchen or maybe you're at your grandma's house and you're watching her cook up something sweet. And you watch her carefully measure out each one of those ingredients, just the right amount of flour, of baking powder, sugar, salt, cinnamon, maybe some buttermilk. And then the phone rings. And you think to yourself, jackpot, I'm about to be alone with this delicious dough. (laughs) But this is not her first rodeo. She saw that twinkle of mischievous opportunity in your eye. And before you knew it, she has swiped that bowl of happiness right out from under your nose, and she's put it up on top of the fridge. (laughs) All is not lost, though, you think to yourself. She forgot the sugar. Nope. She's back. That's gone, too. But again, you are an optimist. And before you lies an array of ingredients on this counter. And now that supervision is out of the mix, you can finally enjoy. So you start with a spoonful of flour. Nope, that didn't do it. Tastes like wood. So next, you take a little dab of baking powder. No, wrong again. That is quite metallic-y. So you take a squirt of vanilla. Nope, three strikes. Vanilla is not good by itself. And you think to yourself, okay, we got to get something that we're confident in. Cinnamon. Cinnamon's good. Cinnamon rolls, need I say more? So you take a big old spoonful of cinnamon. Down the hatch it goes. Oh no, you have been woefully ill informed. Cinnamon is not good in these quantities. Your mouth is on fire, so you grab the buttermilk. Buttermilk, creamy, right? Calming, right? No, yet again, you're wrong. That buttermilk's got some tang. Each one of these ingredients by itself doesn't work, it's not good. But we know when a good baker carefully takes the right amount of ingredients in the right amounts, mixes in the right order, bakes at the right temperature for the right duration, wow, wonderful things come out of the oven. And in our study in Acts this morning, we're going to see Paul and Barnabas, where they're just like those individual ingredients, that when distilled down and taken in high dose, they are not good. Our story will begin with a rough moment between these two men, and it's going to end up leaving a very bad flavor in our mouth as we move forward. 
And the question that we'll be asking ourselves is how does God use Paul and Barnabas' brokenness amidst his kingdom-building work? And in turn, how does God use our brokenness amidst his kingdom-building work? So let's stop talking about it. Let's get to, get to look at it right now. If you want to open up your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 36. Acts chapter 15, verse 36. And I am reading from the NASB translation. So if it's a little different, that's why. So verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take John called Mark along with them also, but Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with, the, with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him, sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So our journey begins, our story begins rather, we are in Antioch the sister church of Jerusalem to the north. And if you remember from the last two weeks, Paul and Barnabas, they were actually just in Jerusalem sorting out the whole circumcision and the Gentiles issue. And once that's been sorted out, they return to Antioch Community Church to deliver the news, continue working in their church. And then verse 36, some days go by, we don't know how long, days, months, weeks, but Paul tells his best friend, Barnabas, hey, Let's go back to Lystra, to Derby, Iconium, Pisidian Antioch. Let's go back to Cyprus, see how the churches are doing. Of course, Barnabas, he's like, yes, great idea. Let's do it. I'll start packing my bag right now. I'll go get Mark. But verse 38, Paul says, you're joking, right? I thought you said Mark for a second. You're not talking about the Mark that deserted us in Pamphylia, are you? Um, yeah, of course I am. Why would I not be talking about Mark? John Mark, my cousin. Paul, you know exactly who I'm talking about. Oh, good. Then it should be quite obvious why we should not take him with us. And from that point, the argument just got worse and worse, hotter and hotter. And at the end of verse 39, it says they separated from one another. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. You can almost picture Barnabas storming out of the conversation, yelling at Paul as he slams the door. Fine, I'll take Mark by myself, and we'll go to Cyprus without you. And what are these guys arguing about? It's back from the first missionary trip. If you recall, Paul, Barnabas, and young Mark, they have gone out to the island of Cyprus. That's where they confront Bar-Jesus on the island, and they minister to the proconsul there, Sergius Paulus. And after they're done there on the island, they sail north to the mainland. And as they arrive there in Acts 13, 13, Luke records this. It says, John, that is Mark, left them and returned to Jerusalem. So although Luke doesn't say anything about this departure, he doesn't cast an opinion on it. Clearly, though, Paul took his actions as desertion. And there's no recorded resolution to this argument. Look in the text. There's nothing there. 
Luke has nothing. No reconciliation before Barnabas and Mark leave. No amicable conclusion to go separate ways. No blessing each other and agreeing to disagree, but support from the Lord and from the church. There's none of that. This is huge. This would have been massive. Paul and Barnabas are both giants in the faith. If you recall, Barnabas shows up years ago. He enters this history before Stephen is martyred, before Ananias and Sapphira. We got to go back to Acts chapter 4. Barnabas is introduced as a Levite from the island of Cyprus, and he is in Jerusalem giving the apostles the proceeds from selling a piece of land he owned. And it seems then that Barnabas stuck around in Jerusalem and he became a Jesus disciple there. And then, of course, Paul shows up later on. He enters as the silent supervisor of Stephen's stoning. But we know that on the road to Damascus, Paul has an incredible conversion experience. And with his newfound faith, he eventually finds himself in Jerusalem as a new Jesus follower, but with all the baggage of being a lethal persecutor. So in Jerusalem, with this new identity, Paul tries to be a part of the Jesus community, but they're afraid of him. I don't blame him. I I would be too. But Barnabas, the son of encouragement, the text tells us he took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how Paul had seen the Lord on the road. Barnabas told them, Paul was a disciple now. He was a Jesus follower. He was a brother. And the Paul-Barnabas friendship is forged in that moment. A moment of incredible advocacy, loyalty, and love. And from that moment on, these two men began a lifetime friendship, sharing the same mission to take the gospel to the entire world. That is not where we're at right now, are we? These two elders of the Antioch church have separated. And I'm sure that split sent shockwaves to the Antioch church. And I wonder if on the day that Barnabas and Mark set sail, if, if Paul walked down to the beach and stood in an overlook and watched that ship sail away. I wonder, wonder what his conversations what his prayers with our Savior were like. Jesus, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to yell at Barnabas. But he was wrong. Or am I wrong? Should I, should I have been okay with Mark coming? No. No, Father. Of course not. I needed somebody I could depend on. Ah, Holy Spirit, help me. Redeem this situation. We don't know exactly the condition of that relationship as they separated. Verse 38 just reads, really intense argument occurred. It was so bad that they separated, and now they've gone their own ways. Luke's omission of any mention of the relationship healing, I believe, suggests it didn't happen, at least to the degree that we would hope. So what started with a great idea, let's go back together, check on the churches, has now dissolved into broken relationship. And this is how the trip begins. It's like a shadow has been cast over the journey before it has even started. And I can imagine Paul's first step on the road out of town had to have included some some doubt, some remorse, and a big question. 
What is God going to do with this trip that is clearly not starting well? And I don't know about you, but I feel like in my life, that is exactly how Sunday mornings before church have gone so many times. For whatever reason, Sunday morning is prime for family and marriage arguments. You know, kids aren't listening. Your spouse says something passive-aggressive. People are not getting ready quickly enough. You get in a tiff with the missus and you're driving to church. Maybe it's just silence, but maybe you guys are still arguing through the drive, but then you arrive at church and you walk in and it's all, oh, good morning. How are you? Oh, it's so good to see you. I had such a great time with Jesus this morning. Quiet cup of coffee. Oh, so life-giving. And your spouse is in the background just When I come to church in the midst of an argument with my wife, it puts me in a state of need. She's hurt. I'm hurt. And we enter in a place where we both focus our eyes on the Savior. We at first may only half-heartedly sing, but through the message delivered, the Holy Spirit shows his goodness through loving conviction and a hug of encouragement. And by the end of the service, I'm yet again nearing tears as I thank God for his faithfulness and unending grace for me. And I wonder if, in a similar way, this argument between Paul and Barnabas both put both these men in a higher state of need. Because isn't it true we're most ready to be used by God when we are on our knees before him in complete dependence? Let's go back to our text, though. What's also interesting at the conclusion of this chapter, if you notice, is that Luke doesn't cast a conclusion nor opinion on whether Barnabas was right in taking Mark or Luke was right in not taking Mark. Just is what it is. And sure, we can debate on who was more right or how Paul and Barnabas' personalities affected their decision, but Luke doesn't do any of that. doesn't seem to be his purpose or his point. He simply states that on the eve of this second missions trip, a passionate idea has dissolved into a passionate divorce. Verse 40, we read, But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So Paul and Silas, they head out, still fixed to the purpose of the mission, to strengthen the churches, which they do. But I can't also help but wonder, when Paul rolled into those churches, did they go, oh, Paul, it is so good to see you. Thank you for coming back. But I, uh, I, don't, I don't see Barnabas. Where, where's Barnabas? And time after time, Paul would have been reminded of that defining argument. What, what would it have been like for him to go through Lystra, for Paul to walk by the spot where he was stoned, thought dead, would the trauma of that physical attack come back to him, and would he have remembered that it was his brother Barnabas that picked up his lifeless body and prayed earnestly through tears that he wouldn't die? I can't help but think Paul would have had constant reminders of Barnabas' lack of presence. Did he ache for God to redeem the situation? I'm going to pull up a map. Jack, if you can flip to that 
map that we have because we're going to be talking quite a bit about geography here in a moment. So let's get our bearings before we jump in. This is a big map, but it shows the space we're covering for this section of Scripture. Now, down in the bottom corner, you can see is the Sea of Galilee, and the north of that is Antioch. Of course, that's where Paul would have been sent from. And then we know that he is headed toward the churches of Lystra and Derbe. He likely went through Tarsus, his hometown, which is that second uh, above Antioch, that little triangle there. And just north of that are the Taurus Mountains, which are no small mountains. Think Cascades or bigger. But Paul would have traversed those mountains to arrive in the Lystra, Derby, Iconium area. And that's how we begin chapter 16. It begins that we are in Lystra and Paul meets Timothy, verse 1. And a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he, Timothy, was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Verse 3 continues, Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, if you were with us over the last two weeks, you certainly may well be scratching your head with what Paul just did. And if you're not scratching your head, I'm going to tell you why you should, okay? Verse, or chapter 15, let's go back just a little bit. This is what Greg taught on two weeks ago. It says this. Some men, I think we may have the text up here. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. So cue Jerusalem council and the big debate on how are we saved? Do we need to follow the law of Moses? Or are we saved just by grace? Do we need to be circumcised? The law of the Old Testament, does it need to be followed? Now, the council was very clear on this. Chapter 15, verse 11, it says, We believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, Jew and Gentile alike. So Paul says, to double down on this, when he writes to the church in Galatia, I think these texts are up here too, in Galatians, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. In 1 Corinthians, Paul also says, Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. So if this is Paul's stance and the church's stance on circumcision, why is he circumcising Timothy? Now you know why you should be scratching your head. And some of you are like, ha, I knew the Bible contradicted itself. Case in point, Paul's a hypocrite. Well, before you jump to that conclusion, let's take a closer look and see if the Bible is really contradicting itself or maybe we're just missing something. In chapter 15, we know that circumcision is not, is not needed for salvation, although it's a big part of the Jewish culture. And even though it should not be pressed on the Gentile culture who do not practice the art. And this whole issue is arising out of the gospel going to a new culture. The saving news of Jesus is not just a Jewish, Jewish message, but is indeed a Gentile one. It is a message that Jesus said would transcend all cultures and go to the ends of the earth. Now, of course, for the Jewish people, much of their culture was born 
in their relationship with the Old Testament law. It determined customs and behaviors, ways of thinking. It was their worldview. And now the Jewish people are making a transition into this new reality that Jesus fulfilled the law. That the unattainable requirements of the old covenant have been attained by the spotless lamb, Jesus. And in that fulfillment, Jesus has established a new covenant. So the Jewish people are in the midst of an incredible growing pain. They're working through the reality that many of their deeply held cultural ways are not part of salvation. But here is another influencing factor at play. It is the concept of for the sake of the gospel. Paul was willing to do almost anything for the sake of the gospel. And what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 shows this well. It says this, Although I am free from all, and not any one slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew, to win Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. To those who are without the law, verse 21, like one without the law, though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ, to win those without the law. To the weak I became weak, in order to win the weak, I've become all things to all people, so that I may by every possible means save some. Paul was vehemently focused on the mission of the gospel going forth, and he was willing to make incredible personal accommodations to remove any barrier that would prevent the good news going out. So now Paul's actions of circumcising Timothy should be coming into focus. Paul knew there were several competing interests at play. Paul knew Timothy was uncircumcised, being a son of a Greek father. And apparently everybody knew this also. Poor Timothy, one heck of a personal detail you just love everyone knowing. Paul, though, he knew that Timothy's mother was a Jew. And with that, the Jewish people would have expected Timothy to be in harmony with those familial and cultural Jewish ties. Timothy should have been circumcised. And Paul also knew that if he were to remain uncircumcised, a barrier would be present. Jewish observers of the Paul, Silas, Timothy missionary team would likely have had some reservations in accepting their message, knowing that Timothy, the son of a Jewish mother, is uncircumcised. Now, Paul knows that that preferential acceptance is garbage. But what wins the day in the decision-making matrix in Paul's mind is the concept of for the sake of the gospel. It is, in fact, highlighting the scriptural priority that all believers, all believers who desire the gospel to go forward should make personal accommodations reflective of that conviction. Now, this, of course, does not mean you abandon the boundaries of Scripture to accommodate the lost. We are fixed on holiness before God, but adapt our practices to remove any hindrance to the gospel going forward. Now, if we jump back in our text, let's go to verse 5 of chapter 16. It tells us, So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. So we began this journey with Paul wanting to go back to the places he and Barnabas had been. And that's been done. 
Barnabas went out to the island of Cyprus. He's, he's covered that area. Paul with Silas, they've, they've hit it. Derby and Lystra, Iconium, Pisidian, Antioch. Mission accomplished. Now what? Do we head back to Antioch? Do we go home? That doesn't feel right. I mean, this whole journey started with a big disagreement. We haven't yet sensed any real resolution there. And was that all this journey was about? Was just like a check-in with these little baby churches? You know, they've got the young buck Timothy now on the team. They really just left his home. Are they going to turn around, drop him off, and then go home? It just doesn't feel right. We kind of find ourselves asking again, God, what are, what are you doing? Well, they don't go home. But they don't have clear Holy Spirit direction, instruction on where to go from there. Let's keep reading. Verse 6, it continues. It says, They passed through, through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mycenae, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas. So let's pull up our map again. This verse, um, it has a lot of geography in it. And it tells us that these, these men were going through the Phrygian and Galatian region. Depending on the monitor you're looking at, this one's a little more crystal clear, but you can see where I have kind of circled Phrygia and Galatia. They're told, we're told that that's where they were going, and they were going there because the Holy Spirit denied them to go into Asia. Asia would have been to the west of where Phrygia is. It was a larger area kind of in between those two, you know, circles, do not go here. That whole area on the west side of modern-day Turkey would have been Asia. And the Holy Spirit saying, don't go there, as we read in the text, it's no small thing. Because from Pisidian Antioch, which would have been that um, triangle almost to the furthest north point, Troas is way out there to the north, northwest, but Pisidian Antioch would be the next one down the line. From Pisidian Antioch, heading west towards the Aegean Sea was a big main road called the Via Sebast. It was a road built by the Romans to transport their armed forces. It also ran from Perga. Perga would have been down at the coast, straight south of Pisidian Antioch. And it connected those two cities going through the Taurus Mountains. It also had a little leg that went down to Iconium and to Lystra. So it's the road that Paul more likely than not walked on during his first and second missionary journey. So he's left Pisidian Antioch with Silas and Timothy. He's headed down the nice road toward the regions of Asia. It had big cities like Laodicea, Colossae. It would have had a litany of big cities along the Aegean Sea. This would be great gospel-spreading territory. But the Holy Spirit says no. Don't go that way. We don't know why or how the Holy Spirit spoke. Apparently, the way and means are not important because Luke makes no mention of them in the text. What's important, though, is the Holy Spirit says, don't go west. Well, th this band of missionaries, they don't want to go home. They don't want to go south, so they can't go, and they can't go west, so they head north. 
They likely knew the shores of the seas to the north, should be a black sea is the biggest one up there. They would have large cities next to them. The largest was Byzantium or Constantinople or what we call Istanbul today. But as they're heading up that way, after they came to Mycenae, which would be the region to the north, they were trying to go into Bithynia. They were trying to get to these cities. And the spirit of Jesus did not permit them. So we're not going back south. We can't go west. We headed north. We were kind of trying to go northeast. That didn't work. So they skirt along the top of Asia, going through Mycenae, and hit the corner of the country at Troas. Real quick aside, if you notice in verse 6, it says the Holy Spirit, and then in verse 7, it says the Spirit of Jesus. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Before, but before we do, let's take stock of where we're at in this story. Okay, the story began not well. Parno Barnabas have gone their separate ways. Paul has grabbed Silas. They've popped in the churches along the way that Paul helped establish. He's picked up Timothy, and now they just keep hitting roadblocks. They can't go south. They can't go west. They can't go east. They can't go north. So they head out to this port city along the Aegean Troas. It overlooked the North Aegean Sea there. God seems to have closed every door. And now, up against the sea, where are they to go? What was the point of all this? And I can't help but think or imagine that in Troas, Paul may have gone up to a high viewpoint, just like Will, he loved to go out to the beach here to a high viewpoint and look out over the sea. Did he do the same thing? And did he stare out across the port city? Did he watch the ships come and go, trying to discern God's will? And did it remind him of the last ship he saw sail out of port, that of Barnabas and Mark's ship? Did the disagreement all come back? What were Paul's prayers like in that time? I'm sure he was earnestly seeking the Holy Spirit's direction. Because that journey from Pisidian to Antioch to Tras, it would have been weeks long. And during that time, it was just the Holy Spirit closing door after door. No, don't go that way. No, don't go that way. God, what, what are you doing? So I want to ask you, where at on Paul's journey are you? Where are you at? Are you in Antioch? You've got a fresh new idea, a deep passion, an exciting opportunity. You can't wait. You're rearing and ready to go. You want to take action. Or are you in the midst of an argument? Is life unsettled? Is a relationship broken or hurting? Are you not talking with someone? Are you at odds with your spouse or a friend? Or possibly you're in Pisidian Antioch. You've been on an adventure with God, but now you don't know where to go. And you're asking God, what next? Where would you have me go? What would you have me do, Father? Or are you wandering, looking for the Holy Spirit to open a door, but he just keeps 
to close them, slam them right in your face. And you're desperately seeking his direction, his will. But everything you start to pursue is apparently not the right way. And you're discouraged. You're tired. You need help. Are you in Troas? Are you at the end of what seems to be the road? You're at the end of yourself. And you're looking out over the sea just like Paul did. The wind is blowing in your face and confused tears are streaking down across your cheeks. And the only thing left in you is the question, God, what are you doing? Verse 9. A vision. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Oh, praise God. Finally, a clear answer. Thank you, Jesus. We often, like Paul, ask, God, what are you doing? What am I doing? I'm redeeming all things to myself. And even though you, Paul and Barnabas butted heads at the beginning of this trip. I'm going to redeem your relationship. And even though you, Paul, had the great idea to go visit these churches, which, by the way, I gave you that idea, I'm also the one who's going to redeem through deciding who exactly you share the gospel with, when you share the gospel, how you share the gospel, and where you share the gospel. Paul, this is not your missionary journey. These are the acts of the Holy Spirit redeeming the whole world to myself. This section of scripture, it serves to create tension from the perspective of man, but relief and clarity from the perspective that truly matters, God's. It is in this section of scripture that God makes it clear he is the one that will choose the plot, the setting, and the characters in his story of redemption. This passage of scripture also marks as a hinge in the book of Acts because from this view, from this viewpoint on, we will follow the Holy Spirit's acts through Paul exclusively. The plot of this story is the good news going to the Gentiles, people like you and me. The setting will be chosen by the Holy Spirit, by him opening and closing doors in accordance with his perfect purpose and will. And he will choose the characters. It's now time for a young man named Timothy to join the team. But when we look at the story through the lens of Paul, it's rough. Disagreement, broken relationship, lack of direction, questions. But the beautiful contrast to this viewpoint is the one that triumphs, that of God's perspective. God is unfazed by the initial headbutting. It is irrelevant in the master plan of God. God is going to still use Paul to strengthen the churches and take the, the message of, of the gospel across the Aegean to the Macedonians. And beyond this, God is going to redeem the relationship between Paul and Barnabas and Mark also. We know this because six years later, when Paul is writing the letter to the Corinthians, one of the letters he wrote to the Corinthians, he spoke positively about Barnabas asserting that Barnabas continued faithfully on as another gospel-spreading missionary, just like Paul. Paul also, in his first letter 
to Timothy describes John Mark as valuable. So Paul will come to eventually see the deserter as a treasure. So from man's perspective, closed doors. But from God's perspective, a no is just as valuable as a yes in guiding his servants. As I conclude, I told you we would look at why Luke says in verse 6, the Holy Spirit forbid them. And then in verse 7, it says, the Spirit of Jesus. Why did Luke do this? Is Luke trying to reference two persons in the Trinity, the Holy Spirit and Jesus? Or is the Spirit of Jesus just a synonym of the Holy Spirit? Or is the Spirit of Jesus kind of like, well, Jesus is... uh, died, resurrected, he's in heaven now, so it's like the spirit of him. Well, there is no clear answer. I will tell you that because I researched it. There is no conclusion on what it is, but I will tell you what I think. In this section, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they are desperately seeking the clear direction of God on where they should go next. And in their travels, the Holy Spirit speaks, the Spirit of Jesus speaks, And then in verse 10, Luke says, they believed God spoke. I think Luke might be giving a nod to the unity of the Trinity in this work. The resurrected Jesus who ascended to heaven is directing. The Holy Spirit that came at Pentecost to indwell the believers as a mark of the new covenant, he is directing. And God the Father, who sits upon his majestic throne in heaven, is also directing. It's the exclamation point. Luke puts on this section of scripture to answer the question, God, what are you doing? God is affecting his grand plan to bring salvation to the Gentiles. And all of the Godhead is behind this mission. All of God is present and going to be the force that moves and directs his people and church. At the beginning of my sermon, I talked about eating those raw ingredients that go into making a delicious treat. And I think when you distill down any person, you, me, Paul, Barnabas, and you take a good-sized spoonful of any one of us, it's not going to be good. But God knows. God knows this. And in our story today, we see that he, the original baker, knows exactly how to gently fold us into the dough of his kingdom work. And just like when you argue with your spouse or kids before coming to church on a Sunday morning, God knows exactly how to use that argument to make the right conditions for the change he needs to do in your heart. So I don't know where you're at on the journey. Maybe you're in Antioch, excited to go. Or maybe you've messed up the whole situation. Maybe you're trying to figure out what God has next for you. Are doors closing left and right in front of you? Or maybe you're looking out over the sea in Taras at the end of your rope. Take heart. God is working. He most certainly may be driving you down to your knees to bow before him and live in a more dependent way, dependent on him, so you can see and know where true life comes from, where true hope comes from, where true direction comes from. So to close this service, I want to just read some encouraging scripture. Feel free to close your eyes and receive these truths. Romans 8. 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Amen.